Food is a basic human need, but we can't all equally access it. Many who live in urban areas, often BIPOC communities, do not have access to the fresh produce that is so important to a healthy diet. How can we, as a society, tackle this inequity? An inclusive approach to sustainable farming, one that puts education, activism, and love at the forefront of agriculture, may be the way forward. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Leah Penniman, a farmer, mother, a soil nerd, author, and food justice advocate. Leah is the co-founder of Soul Fire Farm, a BIPOC-centered community farm committed to ending racism and injustice in the food system. So Leah, I want to start with a little bit about you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and how you discovered that agriculture was your passion? Did you grow up in a farming community? Oh, I absolutely did not grow up in a farming community. I think agriculture found me rather than the other way around. I mean, to some extent, it was inevitable because my siblings and I had this really close, intimate relationship with the natural world stemming out of adversity. I mean, we were the only brown kids in our school and we were relentlessly teased and excluded. So we spent all our time in the forest. And when I turned 16 and it was time to get a summer job and start saving for college, uh, the, the job that hired me was on a farm. And I will say that, you know, from the moment of hoeing a row of carrots to, you know, the smell of cilantro clinging to my hands at the end of harvest day, I just was so in love with that elegant simplicity of seed to harvest. And, you know, that was 96 and I've been farming every season since then. So on this show, we focus on well-being, and there are a lot of pieces that go into that. But one thing we know is that a nutritious diet is so important. So can you talk to me a little bit about food deserts and injustice in the food system and the agriculture community? Oh, such a big and important topic, right? Justice in the food system. And I will say a lot of people give me side eye when I talk about, you know, racism and injustice in the food system, because we don't usually think of food as being connected to social justice. But, you know, to be honest, the foundations of this nation's food system are really rooted in stolen land and exploited labor. And we have not shaken off that legacy. I mean, the land that we grow on uh, in this country right now is almost 98% white owned, which is more concentrated in the hands of one group than ever before. And the people who grow our food are predominantly, you know, Latinx, Hispanic, and other people of color who aren't protected under the same labor laws as everybody else. And so this real exploitation of land and labor has also made its way to the consumer side where, you know, as you mentioned, the federal government terms certain neighborhoods that don't have supermarkets and have high poverty as food deserts. And we've uh, preferred the term food apartheid because it really is a human created system rather than some natural and inevitable force like a desert. And there's a history of divestment and redlining and housing discrimination that leads to the fact that your zip code is a leading determiner of your life expectancy, your access to fresh food, you know, even things like policing and education. So, so the food system needs a complete overhaul in order to, to work for all people and to also work for the earth. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know that's actually a big part of your mission. At 
Soulfire Farms, you do more than just grow food. So can you tell us more about how you started the farm and what you hope to accomplish? So the creation of Soulfire Farms started out a bit more humble than trying to fix the whole food system. You know, it was it was really personal. My partner, uh, Jonah and I, we had two young children, Nishima and Emmett. Um, Emmett was just born, Nishima was two. And we were living in one of these neighborhoods under food apartheid called the South End in Albany, New York. And, you know, despite our many years of farming experience and college degrees and, you know, high motivation to feed our children fresh fruits and vegetables, it just was not an option. I mean, there were no grocery stores, no farmer's market. There wasn't even a bus line near our house to get to the supermarket. So if you didn't have a car or a lot of money, you know, this is before Blue Apron, <laughs> you, you just couldn't get the food. We ended up walking over two miles to the nearest drop-off of fresh food um, through a CSA or Community Supported Agriculture Program, you know, one way and then piling all the vegetables on top of the kids in the stroller and going back down the hill. So when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they started half jokingly, you know, chiding us to start the farm for the people. And we didn't take it as a joke. We'd been sort of thinking anyway that at some point we want to start a farm. But this seemed like this crucial and pivotal moment where we could create something that would alleviate a bit of the strain on our neighbors and community members in the South End who were also very much struggling to get fresh food for their children, you know, and their families. So when we see, we purchased the land in 2006 and opened the farm in 2010, because it took that long to heal the soil and build a home and, you know, make, make the business viable. And uh, the very first program that we had when we opened in 2010 was doorstep delivery of fresh food to our neighbors. And, you know, of course, things have expanded and, and diversified since then. So it's almost like you didn't have a choice. <laughs> right. We're doing because it, it was what what was needed, right? <laughs> Can you tell me more about how you accomplish that and what you do there to incorporate that into the work on the farm? Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, so we work in, you know, three main spheres. The first is the farm itself. So we're on 80 acres of traditionally Mohican territory, and we're growing, you know, fruits, vegetables, herbs, raising animals on pasture for eggs and meat, all using our Afro-Indigenous ancestral practices that sequester carbon, increase biodiversity. And then we box up that food and we serve approximately 50 families on a weekly basis through this subscription program. Um, in addition to that, sort of the second sphere of our work is that we're a training farm. So we, um, we have a mission to equip and fortify and inspire this next generation of black and brown farmers. And in a non-pandemic year, that's mostly in person. So there's a couple thousand visitors here on the farm, uh, mostly for week-long uh, residential courses, but we also have season-long apprenticeships and day-long workshops, youth programs, and so forth in Spanish and in English. Uh, we've had to pivot some of that online, but we're doing our best to have small groups outdoor only as well. And then the third sphere of our work is about systems change. It's really about mobilizing the public to see how important it is to treat farm workers family, uh, fairly, to, to share the land, to make sure that everyone has access to culturally appropriate healthy food. Um, and that looks like you know, educating about policy, educating about reparations, um, about the types of institutions we need to build and support to have localized food systems. And it's very exciting because we have so many just incredible regional and national partners that we collaborate with on this, this systems change and have gotten the ear of, you know, all the Democratic presidential candidates who've integrated some of our work into their platforms and, you know, very, very exciting momentum that I could not have imagined, you know, even a few years ago. Mm. Well, thank you for that work that you do. It's important for, for all of us. So 
You mentioned that you also do a lot of work with young people. How did you become passionate about this and how do you use the platform that you have and what are some of the impacts that you've seen? Well, something that's been so powerful about, about our work in the local community is that we started out by uh, working with families through a survey and through focus groups to really identify what are the barriers to accessing and enjoying healthy food. And there were fundamentally two barriers. It was money and transportation. Motivation to eat healthy food, cooking skills, none of those were barriers. And so once we eliminated the cost barrier by making the food sliding scale so people could you know, pay whatever they could afford and eliminating the transportation barrier through doorstep delivery, families were then able to enjoy this fresh, healthy, you know, local organic produce. And um, that's been so powerful because I think there's this pervasive mythology that the underlying problem, so to speak, with the health of the nation or the health of the Black community is ignorance, you know, lack of education or lack of motivation, when in fact it really has much more to do with access. And so if we can can take care of cost, transportation, you know, ge geography, other barriers, making sure folks have the equipment in their kitchens to cook and, you know, that the time and the support, then it then it happens. And um, so we've seen that with our families in Solidarity Share and also with the youth who come out for the farmer training programs, 100% of these thousands and thousands of youth who've come to these programs joyfully and enthusiastically gobble down their, you know, vegetarian burritos and gumbo <laughs> soup, that. right? Because <laughs> they made it, like they, they harvested and they made it. So there's no like convincing them um, that this is what they want. You know, I, the first time someone eats a real actual tomato, it, it kind of speaks for itself. I hear you. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's certainly something we all deserve to have. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine, right? We all deserve it. We all do. So I want to go back to your own childhood because I know that spirituality is very important to you. Can you tell me more about that and what it looked like in your family how that influenced you mm. and how you incorporate that into your life and work now. Oh, that's wonderful. I love you that you brought it back to childhood because you're, you're making me remember when my younger sister and I were quite young, maybe five years old and six years old, respectively, you know, we invented our own religion. So we thought, and it was called <laughs> mother nature. And we would go outside and, you know, make <laughs> offerings of songs and, and flowers and gifts um, to the earth. And now as an adult, having spent a significant amount of time in West Africa and in Haiti, which are our ancestral homelands, I've, I've come to believe that we weren't inventing, that we were really remembering, you know, mm -hmm. because African traditional religion does see the earth as deity and, you know, all these forces of nature, like the thunder, the clouds, the plants, the trees, they're all sacred. They're all considered to be infused with godliness and, um, and those practices that we had of, of making offerings and singing songs to nature are very much part of our ancestral tradition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, since then, I've, I've been very blessed to be able to um, engage in some deep study around, you know, what are these, these traditional religions, the Yoruba religion, uh, Vodun, which comes from the Dahomey region, and integrate more of those practices into what we do at Soulfire Farm. So a couple of examples, and, and there are many, it's really part of our daily life, is, uh, is asking for permission. So there is a belief that um, the earth is not so much a, a sort of amalgamation of natural resources to be used, right? The earth is a, 
a being. And mm -hmm. so before we dig a pond or cut a forest, we ask permission. And there are certain uh, tool, divination tools that we use to, to find out what that answer is or what the conditions are. And so that is something, you know, before we make any major changes on the land and we don't always get a yes, you know, sometimes we have to wait or uh, figure out what those conditions are. Um, another example would be our seasonal festivals. So we have one coming up called Manje Yam which uh, literally translates in Haitian Creole as eating yams, but it, it's a festival where we honor the spirit of the yam. And here we grow sweet potatoes because yams don't grow in upstate New York. But uh, it's it's really cool because the, the yam spirit actually cannot stand having any um, conflict or bitterness or anger around it. So there's a whole period, um, very much like the Jewish days of awe, before Manjayam, where you seek forgiveness and heal wounds with other people. So you're prepared mm, to that. eat the yams in peace. And uh, there's a lot of fun elements to the ritual, like uh, rolling on banana leaves, leaves mystically back to the land of our ancestors and sort of silly fun um, aspects as well. So those are two examples, but these practices are very much integrated, you know, into daily life of, of really treating the earth as the Orisha or, or divinity that she is. Mm. Well, we talk about well-being on the show in many forms, but I don't think we've ever really talked about it from the perspective of nature. Can you talk about this connection with the natural world and how it can positively impact someone? Well, I'll tell you a quick story and then I'll, you know, I'll throw some science at it. But there's this wonderful young person who's now grown. His name is Dijor Carter. And when he was 13 or 14, he came out to the farm for one of our youth programs and this child was so skeptical. He's like, I am not getting out of the van. I am not touching any bugs. Like, I'm not doing any of this. But then when we all left on a tour, he was terrified a bear would come, like, find him in the van and eat him. So he did get out of the van, came with us, and quickly realized that his brand new Jordans would be completely ruined walking around this farm and took them off and walked barefoot. So... When we, you know, we went through this tour, none of the children were really listening, which is fine. They were squealing because little toads were jumping across their feet and they saw a snake and they saw this and that. And and we get to the end to debrief what they noticed or what they stood out to them. And Dijar says, you know, this might sound crazy, but as soon as my foot touched the ground, it felt like my grandma, like her memory had come up through my foot to my heart. And I was remembering all these things from when I was little when she was alive and she would garden with me and like put a worm in my hand and tell me to be gentle and you know miss I didn't think I had anything to do with this place but I realized that I have everything to do with this place you know and then the, the kids are all talking about their grandmas and um, I share this because I think that connecting with nature and farming you know is partly about learning skills of growing our own food but also very much is about um, healing our sense of disconnection from one another and from what's possible. So for young people to be on the lands, um, for their bodies to be free to move, for them to be able to eat good food, for them to see uh, adults like black and brown adults who look like them running their own business, this just starts to expand like that feeling of what's possible and, and what can be meaningful in their lives, you know, and, and there's a whole lot of you know, fascinating research about, you know, the nature deficit disorder and sort of the impact of not having nature um, in terms of cognition, um, physical health, 
Uh, everything from diabetes to kidney failure can be impacted by not having access to nature. And then perhaps most intriguing, you know, the, the somewhat recent research about soil bacteria and its implications for our mental health. You know, the sort of headline is, is soil the best antidepressant? So when we, especially as young people, are getting little bits of soil into our mouth because we're interacting with the environment, we're actually building up a healthy gut flora that makes us more resilient to um, to traumas and upsets of life. Uh, and anecdotally, you know, again, you know, going back to Dijor, but even the thousands of folks who come through for other programs, I mean, we're here teaching them, you know, soil chemistry and marketing strategies. And by and large, the feedback we get on our evaluations is about healing, connection, truth, justice, like possibility, right? So it's clear that the earth is doing her master composting. She's figured out how to not just compost uh, like leaf debris into rich, dark soil, but she's composting all of our yuck, you know, and giving up, giving it back to us as, as hope and connection. So, yeah, I think the main job we have out here is just to introduce people to the earth and then she kind of takes over and gets the healing going on. Well, that's awesome. Um, so we're in a very difficult moment for the whole world between the COVID-19 pandemic, not to mention everything else we've faced in 2020 over the last year. And I do think in some ways there's reason for hope. I think there's always reason to hope. When it comes to the future for you and your work at Soulfire, what are your hopes and fears for the future? Oh, hopes and fears. I mean, so my daughter, Nishima, who is no longer a little baby, she's now 17. She says the food system is everything it takes to get sunshine onto your plate, um, which <laughs> I love this image, like of the arc of a food system. And so my hope would be that, you know, all along that arc, whether we're talking about land ownership, you know, the rights of farm workers, the sovereignty of seeds, uh, the food access, like all of that is really infused with justice and equity and sustainability. And that Soul Fire Farm does our humble part as a training farm um, to, to inspire and, and resource that. And my fear, you know, to be really honest, I think my fear is that we'll like all burn ourselves out before we get there because there's, there's so much work to do and there's so much demand for the work and with deeply, deeply caring people on our team and in our networks. You know, folks are just always going the extra mile and there's only so long that you can, you know, pull off the 60 hour work weeks and, um, you know, before you get disillusioned and burnt out. So my hope is that society catches on and, and helps us out, gives us a hand with this, this really crucial um, effort to heal the food system. For people that are listening who want to get involved, what are some actionable steps that people can take and maybe not help you burn out? <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, there are so many really amazing ways that um, folks can engage in food justice. And uh, I will say first that for a full list with over a hundred options, you can go to soulfirefarm.org's take action page, but I'll mention a few. So one of them is an innovative project by Soul Fire Farm and the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust called the Reparations Map. And it's a, an interactive Google map that lists all of these Black, Indigenous, and people of color-led farms and food projects across the nation. And you can scroll through, find projects near you, and it will list what they need, which is sometimes as simple as uh, someone to help them with their website or, um, you know, a car, used car that they can borrow. Uh, so check out what those farmers need, because I really think 
that at the same time as we have a global analysis acting locally and supporting the farmers around us is really, really crucial. Uh, another thing that folks can do is to educate their lawmakers around the 2020 Fairness for Farmworkers Act. Um, a lot of lawmakers are not aware of the fact that we still don't have equal protection under the law for people who work in the food and farming system. That means no right to unionize, no right to a day off in seven, uh, no overtime pay, uh, inadequate child labor protections for children as young as 12, and so forth. And so passing the Fairness for Farm Workers Act is one way to um, address some of those harms that go back to the mid-1930s, right? Um, and then, you know, I think the last thing that I can mention is there are some really neat initiatives nationally, like the Real Food Challenge, which encourage institutions and including cities, universities, hospitals to sign on to a commitment to use their institutional purchasing power toward uh, sustainable and uh, ethically grown food. Uh, usually it's a 20% budget commitment and uh, there's all the templates out there from Real Food Challenge uh, that, that you can use. So if you're part of a school or a city or an institution, getting them to make that commitment goes a lot further than thinking about the $1, one vote personal activism, but instead, you know, moving huge budgets to, to make permanent uh, promises. So those are three out of hundreds, but yeah, go to soulfirefarm.org, take action and check out the ideas and see what resonates with you because there's so many right answers to that question. I have one final question, which is kind of a two-part question. Um, you have a lot going on. So <laughs> how do you manage everything we just talked about and making time for, for self-care? What does that look like for you? <laughs> well, I think I have a long way to go and a lot to learn from others about well-being. But I will say that I have pretty religiously kept to an early morning routine of um, taking a run on the trails, which, you know, it kills a lot of birds with one stone because I get my heart exercise. I get a chance to be alone, which introverts need and just let my thoughts wander. And I get my nature time, you know, all in a 45 minute chunk. So at least six out of seven days a week, that's me. And so even if the rest of the day just is helter skelter i at least am grounded by my early my dawn routine and i get to see a lot of cool animals it is not uncommon to see a bear you know deer porcupines owls and other beautiful creatures on my morning run so that's magical as well yeah that's i love that and i think there's a there's a lot we can all learn from that so i know i said last question but first i want to say thank you so much for coming on the show sharing your story and i'd love to leave the listeners with any last piece of advice that you have to increase our connection with the earth oh thank you so much for having me this has been awesome i guess i would just say that remember that the earth loves you back as much as you love her and so even if it's just you know, a few sprouts that you're growing on your counter or a tree that you're taking care of in a corner lot, I really encourage everyone to rekindle that personal relationship with the earth and you'll find many rewards from it. I, I couldn't agree more. So, and I, and I can't think of a better line to end on. So thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for spending some time with us today and sharing your story and, and your insights. I know that I got a lot out of it and the listeners will as well. So I deeply appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you.
I'm so grateful Leah could be with us today to talk about her work on the Soul Fire Farm. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the Workwell podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword Workwell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the Workwell podcast series or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. 